thank you, Dylan. You know, we don't like totally coordinate everything, but on the way over here this morning in my car, I was singing that last song. So I got here and I heard, I walked into the building and I can hear Dylan warming up that song. I just thought, God, you are so good. You totally know what you're doing and you have things under control, even when we don't feel like he does. Well, good morning. I am happy to be standing in front of about six people in an empty auditorium, <laughs> the production crew. It's a strange feeling, and, but I'm glad they are here at least because it will make it seem like I'm actually speaking to people. But I know that you are out there and I want you to know, uh, as I, Dylan mentioned last week, as I am speaking, I'm thinking about all of the people who would normally be sitting here. I, it, I was joking with Annie, we should, we should probably get like, if we have to do this for very long, we should get cardboard cutouts of the people in the congregation and just set them up in the chairs. It'll be like uh, some of the NFL games you've seen. I also appreciate uh, Dylan bringing up the psalm, Psalm 32, Psalm of David. We're going to be talking about David this morning, a, a lot actually. Uh, he is our central figure and we're going to be talking about uh, some things of great importance that I think we can take away from his life and I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit will bless his word this morning to us. You know, other than Jesus, nobody else in the Bible has as many chapters devoted to the telling of their life story as David. 66 chapters are devoted to telling the narrative of David's life, which is pretty amazing. When David was anointed to be king, God said that, of David that he was a man after my heart who will do all my will. David reigned over Israel for 40 years and he presided over Israel's rise to a period of its greatest influence and success. He's celebrated, he is celebrated for his great faith and courage in God as we saw in the defeating of, of Goliath, the Philistine giant. He was known for his passionate worship of God as seen in, through the many Psalms that he wrote. He was a courageous warrior under whose leadership Israel defeated its enemies and had a period of relative peace and security. And yet, David was also known for having failed in ways that were extreme and public, the consequences of which, in some cases, were catastrophic. And while I don't want to do any injustice to the memory of David by focusing solely on his failures, I do think David would be happy to know that 3,000 years later, people who were followers of God are still deriving benefit and guidance and exhortation and comfort from his greatest failures. He would be happy to know that his sins are being redeemed in the lives of, the, of, the, of, of, of you and me as we, try, as we strive to follow Christ. So this morning we're gonna take a look at a couple of chapters in the life of King David. And at this point in David's life, things are good. He's been anointed king over all Israel. The kingdom is not divided at this point. He has secured the Ark of the Covenant and he has secured the city of Jerusalem and returned the Ark to Jerusalem. He has defeated the enemies of Israel 
David is looking like an MVP candidate. All the stats are good. <laughs> we, we expect him to get the award. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 this morning, as well as two Psalms of David that derive from this period, one of which we read from, or Dylan read from just a little bit ago. So before we open our Bibles, let's take a moment and just ask God to bless his word to us. Father God, we are grateful to you that you have given us your word and that your word contains such honest, unflinching accounts of your people. We're grateful that through these accounts you instruct us in how we should live and how we should relate to you and what we should do when we are caught up in trouble of our own making. Please open our hearts this morning to hear from you regardless of where we are and help us to come to you to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Amen. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I will just give you a heads up. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning, so be, be a, buckle your seatbelt. Now, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. I think the ESV is going to be up on the screen. They're pretty similar, so hopefully that won't be a distraction for you. 2 Samuel 11. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So... David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not, not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Then David, David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and made him drunk. 
And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling all the events of the war to to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall so that some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another, Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, let's stop there and take stock a little bit of what we've read so far. David is a king, and this is springtime, and this is when kings go out to battle. But David, as the author points out, stays in Jerusalem. Now, if this was a movie, this is where the ominous music would, would get cued in, all right? David was not where he should have been. If he had been where he should have been, perhaps what followed was, would not have happened. Now, how many times when you and I fall into sin are we not where we ought to, to be? Uh, notice even how we say that, I fell into sin as though we tripped over something and there was an oops involved. But if you fall from a precarious place, it first is required that you are in a precarious place. So maybe, maybe the accident actually isn't an accident and maybe the sin actually started a little bit earlier. David sees Bathsheba. Now this in and of itself is not sin. She was likely in the courtyard of her own residence and doing nothing wrong. But after David sees her, something else happened. James mentions this in the first chapter of his epistle. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. 
But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, David is, a, is tempted because he's enticed by his own lust, but now lust has conceived and given birth to sin. We don't know how long he watched her, but afterwards he inquires of, of his servants, who, who is that woman? And a servant tells him that she is the wife of Uriah. Now you can almost hear the caution in the voice of the servant, right? Yeah, this is the wife of Uriah. But sin has already been conceived. So David sends his messengers, you can read that as the extraction team, and has her brought to him and he has sex with her. And afterwards she goes home. You might be thinking some version of what could, possible, what could David possibly have been thinking? How could he justify committing adultery? How could he justify sending for another man's wife? You notice there wasn't just one step in the process. He sees her. He, then he has to figure out who she is. Then he sends his servants to get her, and then after she arrives, he decides to have sex with her. So this is multiple intentional actions. This is David. Come on, this is the guy who wrote Psalm 23. This is our king. This is the one who has honored the Lord. How could he fall like this? We don't know exactly what was going on in David's mind, but we, we know that by this point in time, he had at least six wives. We don't know how many other wives or concubines he had. David was a passionate soul. And having the object of his passion is something that he had grown accustomed to. He wasn't the only king to have done this, but God's guidelines for the king of Israel seen in Deuteronomy expressly stated that kings should not multiply wives unto themselves lest their hearts turn away. God knew. It's a dangerous thing to always have what we want we begin to expect that all of our desires are gonna be gratified and instead of self-control, we wind up with idolatry, worshiping our desires, our bodies, our pleasures. You know, the flesh is always ready to take a good gift of God and pollute it by making it take God's place in our heart. Haven't that, hasn't that been your experience? We always take the good gifts of God and our flesh wants to take them and raise them up to a place of inordinate importance where that becomes the thing we live for. And this could be any number of things that feel good to us. Sex just happened to be David's Achilles heel. But we lust after money and we lust after pleasure. We lust after fame and power and influence. There's so many things that could be a story just like this for you or for me. The flesh is always willing to take the good gift of God and turn it into idolatry. Bathsheba sends word to David that she is pregnant and now we've got a problem. David's been thinking that perhaps he got away with a little indiscretion but now we have a full-blown problem. Adultery is a hanging offense 
or back then a stoning offense. How many people already know? David's probably ticking it off in his mind. Okay, there was the one that I asked who she was, and then there were the messengers I sent to go get her, and then there were the ones who probably stood by the door to make sure nobody else came in, and then, and then there's Joab, and then there's whoever else Joab had to tell in order to orchestrate the, the murder of Uriah. And the publicity, the exposure of his sin is probably starting to weigh on his mind about now. Well, easy enough. We'll get Uriah to come home from the battle, sleep with his wife, and no one will be the wiser when she gives birth, except that this does not work out. Uriah is a man of honor. He refuses to go down to his house with all of his comrades still being out in the field. A lot of thought went into that. Didn't work out. David concocts a plan then to have have Uriah murdered in the battle. He writes a note to this effect and he sends it to Joab by the hand of Uriah. Oh my gosh. This is, that, that's, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? He sends the man back to battle with the man's own death sentence in his hand, unbeknownst to him. David wants Joab to put Uriah in the thickest part of the battle and then pull back, and Joab does not exactly follow this advice, possibly because it would have required some coordination with other men, like, okay, there's going to be a signal. When I give you the signal, then you all pull back. And that would have exposed you know, the, the problem to a wider range of people. So Joab improvises, and he pursues the Ammonites to their city, and he gets close to the city. He gets right up near the gate. And this is when the archers shoot from the wall, and, and they take out Uriah. And they, but they, all, they don't just take out Uriah, do they? They take out other men. I hadn't thought about that but until I got into this study that you know Uriah was not the only casualty of David's sin. Joab anticipates that David might be a little upset about this, about the strategy and about the other men being killed. So he sends the messenger with, you know, the kind of the punchline here is, hey, Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David sends the messenger back telling Joab essentially, don't worry about it. The sword devours one as well as another. Don't be too upset. Yeah, some guys got killed, but you know that that kind of thing happens in war, doesn't it? Ah, David. This is not his best moment. He believes he has succeeded in covering his sin, likely after this. Uriah is dead after all. He takes Bathsheba into his home after she mourns the death of her husband and everybody's going to carry on not knowing what really happened. But the thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Some scholars believe that as many as 12 months may have passed before, after the end of chapter 11 and the start of chapter 12 in 2 Samuel, and we're going to go to 2 Samuel right now, 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is the what comes next. Then the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David, and he came to him 
And he said, there were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. It grew together, up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. <laughs> then David's anger burned greatly against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Nathan's confrontation of David was thoughtful, it was strategic, and it took David completely off guard. He was blindsided. You know those plays where Russell Wilson is dropping back and he's looking left, but the, the, the left end is doing a, a blitz, and he doesn't see it coming. And you just cringe, because you know the impact is, is it's on its way. That was this moment. David did not see it coming, and he got blasted. It may have taken that to really break through his denial, his shame, his defensiveness. Probably did, and that's why God gave Nathan that wisdom and that message. Any illusion that, that he had, that, that he, somehow he had gotten away with his sin has now been completely shattered. Any of you who have lived with hidden sin, 
that has been exposed know the mixture of dread and relief that accompanies a moment like this. Nathan assures him that God has taken away his sin, but also tells him that there's going to be a lot of consequences. So Nathan's message is both a comfort as well as a caution. Now in the coming chapters of 2 Samuel, all of the things that Nathan prophesied come to pass. David's child dies. His son Absalom murders his half-brother for raping his sister, who was also one of David's children. And Absalom tries to overthrow David's kingdom, making David flee Jerusalem for his life. The resolution of that coup results in the death of Absalom, which causes David intense grief. The sword never does depart from David's house. The last 20 years of David's 40-year reign over Israel were marred by all of these consequences. David's well-known prayer of repentance is Psalm 51. I'm sure a lot of you are very familiar with it. I'm going to read through this psalm, and I want you to listen to his heart as he is broken over his sin. This psalm was written after Nathan the prophet went to David. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know your wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering, and with whole burnt offering. They shall offer bulls on your altar. 
the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David has come to this place of brokenness. His plea for forgiveness runs throughout all of these verses. He knows that he is dependent on the loving kindness and mercy of God. He cannot argue a case. He cannot make a defense. He cannot make his sins smaller, and he cannot make the consequences go away. He needs mercy. He needs cleansing. And for this, he pleads. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David is coming clean with God, and God is forgiving his sin. David's been harboring his sin and pretending that others don't know, hoping that it'll all work out. But he's been deceiving himself. This has not been a perfect solution, even though it may have made him feel temporarily somewhat better. Another psalm that was likely written by David in the aftermath of this fall from his, his place was Psalm 32 that we read from earlier. And in this psalm, David is rejoicing in the forgiveness that he has received from God, and he offers us some additional insight into how he experienced this, this fall and this, and this renewal, and I think there are in this psalm some important things for us to take away. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a great flood of waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And God speaks, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord Loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. I don't know how it is for you. Sometimes when I read a psalm, it seems 
disjointed to me. Like there's these discrete sections and they don't, they don't automatically, on the face of it, I don't go, oh yeah, I see how all this hangs together. And initially when I read Psalm 32, it kind of hit me that way, like, oh, I wonder what that part is doing there. It seems like, it seems out of place or it seems like it's not disconnected somehow. But the longer I sat with Psalm 32 over the last couple of weeks, the more I see how really beautifully integrated this psalm is and how one piece flows into the next. David starts by rejoicing in the fact that he's been forgiven, having his sin covered and sins not taken into account. What a relief. What has he been thinking over the last year? Can you imagine? He's committed murder. He's committed adultery. He's, he's been a wreck. This is a, a disaster. There are no psalms attributed to, to David during this period of his life. It's like he's offline. He, he's disconnected. His sin is a stumbling block between him and God. How blessed to know that you are forgiven. What a relief to not be hiding this stuff anymore. But he also says that blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. What deceit? Well, when he kept silent about his sin, that was the deceit. He was fooling himself, he was trying to fool God, and he was trying to fool others. How well did that work out for him? When he was deceiving himself, he was in misery. His body wasted away, his vitality was drained because the hand of the Lord was heavy upon him. He was miserable. It makes me think of all the people I've seen in counseling over the years who come in with complaints of insomnia and anxiety. And sometimes underneath their physical distress is sin that has never been confessed, it's never been repented of. I don't tell them that, they tell me that after they tell me what it is that has been keeping them up at night and what it is that has been making them so unhappy, desperately unhappy. Often they're depressed. And very often they stop going to church because being around the people of God and singing the praises of God and being in the presence of God hurts when you are hiding and when you're deceiving yourself and others. How can you be comfortable where the word of God is preached when every word you hear from it is pricking your heart? Do you know what this is like? Have you, have you been there? Have you been where David has been? Have you had sin in your life that you have been ashamed of and that you've tried desperately to cover up lest anybody should know. The urge to hide is really understandable. It goes back to the beginning. You know, what did Adam and Eve do after they had sinned in the garden? God finds them hiding in the bushes. It's, it's a natural reflex when we feel ashamed of ourselves. That's the deceit that he says, how blessed is the man in whose heart, in whose spirit there is no deceit. You're blessed when you're not doing that. You're blessed when you are coming clean and facing the truth. 
And that's the antidote that David goes on to describe. Acknowledge your sin, don't hide it. Confess it to the Lord, bring it forth. How much longer do you want to live in that misery? It's not like it's getting any better. Just as an aside, you might want to think about confessing that sin to a real live human being, a brother or sister in Christ or a pastor or counselor. There's something powerful about us following the Lord together and not following the Lord in isolation. James tells us in chapter five, verse 16, he says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I think this is probably one of the admonitions in, in the Bible that is, is least followed and, and that has, and, and to our grief, because we have so much to gain by following Christ together and experiencing the support of our brothers and sisters in our efforts to really do the will of the Lord and to put to death the deeds of the flesh. There's freedom in this. And it's, a, I think, an important part of repentance for a lot of people, especially those of you who are struggling with habitual sins, whether it has to do with substances or behaviors. You know all the ones, right? They're the things we get messed up with. We, we eat too much. We worship sex. We alter our consciousness with chemicals. And we find that it's hard to stop for a lot of reasons. All the more reason if you are struggling with some kind of sin like that, consider confessing your sin to a brother or sister, a trusted one, of course, somebody who's proven themselves to you to be a person of integrity, and let them pray for you so that you can be healed. David goes on in, in Psalm 32 with God speaking in verses eight and nine. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. In other words, come near me of your own volition. Don't make me drag you around. And, and in this context, the way I read this is, don't wait to confess your sin until I have brought consequences down on your head over and over and over again until you finally give up and cry uncle. Don't be like the mule who has to be drugged back to me. Come to me of your own choice. I'll, I'll instruct you. I'll tell you how it ought to be with my eye upon you. Come of your own free will. Find healing. Confess your sin. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, this morning, you may be doing really well in your spiritual life. You may be enjoying the blessings of God and walking in his ways, and if so, then you can rejoice in the fact that your sins are forgiven, and you can sing the songs that we sang this morning with gladness in your heart, and you can rejoice. But this morning, you may be identifying with David. You may be feeling like your vitality is drained out and your body is wasting away. Perhaps you've been avoiding God and his people. 
Maybe you've been self-medicating your misery in some way. If so, take heart. Because even some of the greatest people in God's kingdom throughout history have struggled with great sin. There is no sin too deep for the grace of God. So take heart in David's story. This guy crashed so hard and so deep and God forgave him his sin. Don't spend a year trying to bury your sin. Confess them to the Lord. Come and receive forgiveness and healing. The book of Hebrews in chapter four says we have a great high priest. He is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tested, tempted in all ways as we are, but without sin. Therefore it says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. This is the throne of grace. This is not the altar of execution. Let us come with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us pray. Father, we are amazed at your mercy. We are amazed at your grace. And we are glad in our hearts this morning that you forgive and that you extend forgiveness. Jesus, we are so thankful that you took our sin upon yourself. We're just amazed that you did that. And you continue to extend to us grace and mercy and forgiveness. Father, I just pray this morning that wherever people are, from whatever place they are, of the different kinds of places we read about this morning, that you will encourage them to come, that you will draw them by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, this morning that they will draw from the example of David and that they won't be like the mule that has to be drugged back to you, but, Lord, they will come freely and receive mercy and forgiveness. Thank you that you are that kind of God. Thank you that you have made a way for us and your son to receive that healing and forgiveness. And we just rejoice in that this morning. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Go in the grace and the peace and the mercy of God. Blessings.